Father, we come now be, be in, in this moment of quieting our minds to, to hear you instruct us. Lord, this whole morning has been here uh, listening to what you say and us responding to what you have said to us, um, what you've done for us. We pray now, especially, Lord, that you might teach us through your spirit. You might open our eyes to behold Christ more fully. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have got so much stuff to talk to you about today, but we can't, we can't fit it all in. But I just want you to know that I, I, there's, there's so much in the scriptures that it is hard to narrow down how much to talk about on a Sunday morning because <laughs> we can just go on and on and on. But we are mere humans and we can only pay attention for so long. So we are going to dive into this topic this morning of conquest. Conquest. It's one of those, these themes that runs all throughout the pages of the Bible. And it's part of our continuing look at the big picture of how the whole Bible fits together. Because when we have the whole Bible fitting, and when we know how the whole thing kind of sits together, it's much easier for us to understand what God's doing in the world. It's much easier for us to pick up the scriptures and to read it because we can go, ah, I see how this fits in the big scheme. I wonder if you can remember the things that we've looked at so far. Kids, do you remember what we looked at first? We looked at the... We looked at creation. We looked at creation first. And then what else have we looked at in the last couple of weeks? Covenant. I hear a covenant. We did look at covenant. And another word, it's a big T word. It's a house where God lives. Yeah? Temple. That's right. We looked at covenant. We looked at creation. We've looked at temple. Now we're looking at conquest. These are big themes that run across the pages of Scripture. Now, if you walk into a religious establishment and they start talking about conquest, you might start uh, having the ears, the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up. You might start getting a little bit worried, you know, like when we mix conquest and religion, there's, there's been some bad stuff that's happened throughout history. We might have flashbacks. Well, not that we were there, but we might think about Islamic Jihad or, or uh, Inquisitions or Crusades or even... Um, the Buddhist extremists of Southeast Asia. There's, there is concerning associations between conquest and religion. But I think that's partly why Christians today are so hesitant to talk about conquest and the scriptures. We, we shy away from talking about it. We're afraid of what might, other people might think of us when we talk about it. Perhaps we're suffering a secondhand guilt from the crimes committed by other people. But we don't want to be tarred with the same brush or fall into the same trap as others have when it comes to faith and conquest. So you can put your mind to rest. When, I'm not going to make any cases here that we should uh, start up like a, a Christian army and like take rifles and go and take over the world. None of that. That's not what is going on. But we, are, we, we want to look at what the scriptures reveal about who we are and what conquest has to do with Christ and his people. What is God's plan of conquest? And this is your regular reminder that our God is a God of war. 
you may have tried to sanitize God in your mind and, and kind of put that stuff to the side. You don't want to think about his campaigns to conquer the world. But God's conquering power is all over the place in the scriptures. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. Sometimes we've gone, oh, that was an Old Testament thing. We'll just kind of put that to the side. We don't want to think about that too much. But some of the most uh, potent, confronting language about God taking over the world is in the New Testament. It's all across the pages of Scripture. And if you're looking for it in the New Testament, the Revelation is just full of it. So we either have to come to grips with God as a, a conquering God, or we and, and worship and serve Him as He is, worship Him as the God that He is and has revealed to us, or we end up rejecting Him because we don't like what He has to say. We, we might create an idol, a, a, a God that doesn't really represent who God is and worship that instead. That obviously isn't a good way to go. So we have to, we have to come to the to see what God talks about when he talks about conquering and taking over the world. And in the Bible, I've I've divided into what I think are six main episodes in the story of conquest across the pages of Scripture. It's infused in the Bible, and we can only get so deep in such a sweeping overview. But there's a few themes that keep popping up, including that conquest is about creation or recreation of a place for God's people to live with God place of peace and security and beauty. Conquest is about overthrowing evil and replacing it with holy image bearers of God. And, and in God's conquest, there is no unfairness. There's no innocents who get caught up in the mix. It's God who only, uh, only in his just righteousness takes over those who are his enemies. And the other thing about conquest across the pages of Scripture is that conquest is directed and completed by God himself. Even though he might use his people, conquest is done as a work of God. And as always, where do we go to start seeing these pictures unfurl in the pages of Scripture? We go to the beginning, in Genesis. There, we start to see this picture of dominion under God. God made the world, and, and in some sense, God's making of the world is the first conquest. Because when God made the world, he could have just snapped his fingers and the whole thing jumped into, uh, into being in exactly the right way. But that's not how he does it. He takes those seven days or six days to create the world. Remember, in the first chapter of the Bible, it talks about God creating an unformed world and then gradually, piece by piece, shaping it and creating order out of the world. God didn't bring it into completion in the first moment. He, he, he created it and he formed it and he shaped it and he built it into the world that he wanted. And then, as a crowning uh, piece of creation, he created image bearers. He created people who would image him and who would be his regents, who would be his kind of governors over this creation that he had made. He put them there to have dominion, dominion, a word that we probably don't use much, but it shows up a couple times in these early chapters of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Or some 
translations don't say dominion, they will say that created humans to rule over the earth. It's being in charge, it's being in control, it's being responsible. And now, in case you just thought this was just a one-off throwaway, a few verses later, God says it again. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the living thing, every living thing that moves on the earth. We should be under no illusions about the fact that God expected humanity to take charge as his agents on earth. And in fact, the first job that Adam got was to be in charge of the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam was to work it and to keep it. He was to guard it and to cultivate it. And so here we are in the first chapters of the Bible, presented with a picture of humanity as God's appointed leaders on earth who start their work at God's temple, Garden Temple, guarding and maintaining and cultivating. And from there, humanity is to spread out over the whole world, fill it and subdue it, and to have dominion over it under God. Let's take a moment to think about this mandate. This is a, it's be fruitful and multiply. I mean, the multiplying part is easy enough to understand, know how that works, but what does it mean to be fruitful as humanity? When we're talking about trees, we, we think about trees that they grow and they bear fruit, the fruit that they were designed to bear, the fruit after their own kind. It creates good fruit in season, the right fruit of good quality at the right time. And humanity is to do the same. We are to do the things that God has called us to do, to live the way that God has told us to live, to bear the fruit that he has made us to bear. And one of the things that God made us to do is to have dominion. And this is not an evil, humiliating, crushing dominion, like the cliche of the tyrant who who's an overlord that crushes his subjects into the dirt. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a good, healthy dominion. The dominion that brings life and flourishing to those under its care. The loving care and management of creation so that it can flourish. We, we all know that the best leaders are leaders that use their authority to create an environment where their subjects thrive. And in some sense, this is what humanity is to do, to have a good God-ordered uh, dominion on the earth under him we were made for this dominion and protection god made us this way he designed us this way from the start he builds into us our, these natural desires to protect and to nurture and he made us as two genders two sexes with different advantages and proclivities to enable us to do our job well as a team and when it comes to conquering and guarding and subduing god especially wired blokes to be able to do this why is it that most little boys want to play with swords and guns? Why is it that we fall in love with the stories about defeating the bad guys and slaying the dragon and restoring order to the world? Boys want to save the girl. They want to, they want to build. They want to make. They want to protect. It's something that God built in from the beginning. And it's very interesting to see the addictions that hijack these desires in our modern age. There's... These, we have addictions that hijack our, the, the God-given desires of men and make them impotent. Porn takes the, our desire to be fruitful and multiply in a loving union and directs our energies into fruitless selfishness. 
And video games, they take good desires for conquest and construction and direct it into made-up worlds that are ultimately empty. Now, we know that video games in themselves are not in and of themselves a problem, but it's not surprising to see how they have become such an addiction for so many men. They hijack our good desires and turn them into something that is fruitless. War games are part of what it looks like to train men for battle, whether it's kids playing with swords or, or young men uh, battling it out on the football field or, or virtual combat. But we must never let the training become an end in itself. Otherwise, we are squandering what God has built into us. If we put half the energy into following God that we put into video games, I'm obviously talking like over a lot of people. I know that not everybody is into that. But if we put half the energies into, into doing what God has called us to do, the world would be much, much better place. Instead, because of the disarming of masculinity by things like these and the cultural erosion of the value of men, we're running headlong into a pit of chaos, one that many generations of men have sought to pull us out of. Men and women hold our society together, but if the male half is going to shirk their duties and reject God's design, become fruitless shells of men, then there's not much that the rest of society can do except be dragged down with them. Speaking of men neglecting their duty, we see what happens as a result of that in the earliest pages of the Bible as well. We see infiltration and separatists come and spoil God's design. Adam had a job to do and he failed in it. He didn't guard the garden. He didn't protect his wife. He went along with her disobedience and together they plunged the world into death and sin. And it happened because of Satan. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve bear the guilt and, and therefore the rest of us are affected. They bear the responsibility for their own actions but they did it at the behest of Satan. They did it because they were deceived by the snake who undermined God's word and tricked them. The results of that is that God cursed the world and he made their job of dominion and fruitfulness, made it very hard. Cultivation would be hard. Work would be hard. Childbearing would be hard. Sitting under authority would be hard. The curse really changed how difficult it was for us to fulfill the job that God has given us. But there was a promise hidden in that curse. God promised that even though there was this curse and for the effect of their, their actions, God promised that he would one day come and deal with Satan in this kind of hint here. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So even though the task of dominion was made all the more difficult, there was some hope that there would be some kind of restoration in the future. The infiltrator, Satan, had caused great harm and he needed to be taken down. And there was a promise here that one day there would be a crushing of the serpent's head. But that wasn't this day. This time when Adam and Eve fell was the, the, a fall that marked the cascade of rebellion as you would see across the, the earlier chapters of Genesis with time after time after time of people rebelling against God. 
doing what is evil in his sight. Instead of increasing good dominion over the world, the infiltration by Satan into humanity's good leadership led to rebellion and evil. It was separation between the governors of God's earth and the God who made them. But Satan wasn't the only one meddling in God's good world. Other spiritual beings started getting in on the action and not in a good way. In Genesis chapter 6, we get this weird story that perplexes us and just, it's kind of, just every time you read it, you're like, hang on, what is going on here? It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters of uh, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as any that they chose. And then it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So this is before the flood. There were Nephilim on the earth before and after. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We get these strange, this strange story about spiritual beings who have children with human women. Because these spiritual beings are messing around in God's creation. And the way that this story is positioned right before the story of Noah and the flood implies to us that this is not on. This is part of the problem that God is seeking to overturn with the flood. So we've got these spiritual beings that are rebelling. We've got humanity that's rebelling. They're, at this time, all their thoughts were evil all the time, it says in the scriptures. And so the world was kind of being aligned into two parties. You've got all those rebelling against the Creator, and then God and a few good families on His side. So God set out a plan to reclaim the world that had been divided from Him. He set out a plan to reconquer the world and take dominion over it all once more. He set out a plan to bring humanity back to himself and to deal with Satan and his mates who had caused the problems to begin with. And God started doing this by disowning all those other nations, all those other people, and choosing for himself one special people to work with. He gave over the other nations to the sons of God and said, you look after them. And then he chose one family in the world that he was going to use as the seed to conquer the world. And that was Abraham's family. So, God set out his plan to work through Abraham's family. And the first place where we see this plan starting to come to fruition um, in, is in Egypt. Abraham's family grew up and after they had several generations, they grew into a nation. They went down into Egypt, but then they were captured as slaves in Egypt under the tyranny of an enemy of God under Pharaoh, and there they languished under, under, under the yoke of slavery. And in some sense, they probably felt defeated by the gods of Egypt because they were stuck there and they couldn't escape. Their God, they called out to their God to come and rescue them. And so that's what God did. He came and he overthrew Egypt. He went and he, and he got rid of, he, he went and disarmed all of the gods of Egypt because if you go through and you see the 10 plagues, most of those plagues seem to match up with one or other of the gods of Egypt. And you see God taking control 
of the natural world and showing that he is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one true God. And the gods of Egypt were nothing. And God was going to take back his people from Egypt. So he brought them out of Egypt and they crossed at the Red Sea. And then what happens when they cross at the Red Sea? The Egypt, Egyptian pharaoh and his army followed them into the sea through the crossing. But God caused the water to run back in and destroy that army. And so the people of God, they stood on the opposite bank, having just been freed from Egypt and having seen God conquer their army in a moment. And they sang, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The Lord is a man of war. He protects his people. He rescues them from the bad guy. He conquers for them. He rescues them so that they could come and live with him in a chosen place, a promised land, which was the land of Canaan. God was going to establish them in their own land where, they, where he would bless them and be with them. They would become a shining light to the nations and show that the Lord was the one true God. He was the God of all that is good and wonderful, a beacon of goodness in a world that is oppressed by sin and the rebellious spiritual powers. But here's the problem for them. To go and take their new land, it was infested, infested by evil that they needed to drive out. They needed to go and conquer Canaan. This place, Canaan, is, is when you think of Israel, state of Israel today, there's roughly the same area that we're talking about, the, the place where um, God's people were to go and to take the promised land. And the people who were living there, sometimes they were just referred to by the umbrella term Canaanites. But as per usual, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And you find out that there's actually a whole bunch of different tribes that lived in the area. Now, they had to go and to drive these people out. And not drive them out, and some, sometimes they would just drive them out. But a lot of the time, they actually had to take them out. They had to get rid of everybody there. And we're given a fascinating insight into why God asked the Israelites to completely wipe out many of these tribes living in Canaan. The people saw something interesting when they went and they scoped out the land. There they saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So here we have these strange, weird spiritual beings that came up before the flood uh, who are living in these tribes across the land of Canaan. This is a spiritual war. This is God getting rid of the enemies of God. This is God going on a holy war with his people. And so they are described as giants. That's why they talk about them there as being grasshoppers. We seemed like grasshoppers to them. But when, you, when we say giants, we're not talking about like somebody who's like 10 meters tall or anything like that. Pro they were probably just very big people, like my size or bigger. We're not, so, um, and the average person back in the day was 
about five foot high or, or somewhere around there. I might be getting that wrong. But the point is that there was this kind of race of people who were quite, seemed quite big, quite large. And so they were understood to be the, the, the descendants of the Nephilim. They're sometimes they're referred to as the Anakim or the Rephaim. Uh, so they were sent to drive these people out, to destroy them, these enemies of God, the bad guys. And interestingly, when they came in Deuteronomy, they came on the, on, the, on the opposite side of the Jordan to start their campaign of conquest. They came and they faced off against a guy called Og of Bashan, who is described as being a really tall bloke. But, but interestingly enough, Bashan means place of the serpent. You have a giant in the place of the serpent who they need to face off and destroy so that they can start taking the land that God has for them. And that's what happens. They, they defeat Og and the other king, Sihon, in the same area. And they went into the land. And interestingly, if you follow all the places where they say the Anakim lived, are all the places where they are told that the Israelites went and, and uh, devoted the towns to destruction. But... Although they drove most of them out, there was a couple left. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the Lord, sorry, the land had rest from war. So here we have all the giant-type people driven out, the Anakim, uh, they're all driven back, except for some in Gath, in Gaza. And a few generations later, there would come a king, a king called David. But before he was king, he faced off against what? He faced off against a giant called Goliath, who came from Gath. Here we have David being the representative of the de final defeat of the giants across the land. And Goliath is described as wearing a suit of armor, which literally is wearing a suit of scales. We have the, the king of God's people coming and defeating the giant who's dressed like a snake. God came and drove out the people of the land because they were God's enemies, they were God's... They were, they were the, those who had opposed God. They were those who, um, who were meddling in God's creation. God went and conquered with his people. They took the land. But unfortunately, it didn't stay conquered. Like in the Garden of Eden, there was infiltrators and subversive ways in which God's people were led astray. They didn't face a full-on frontal attack of the enemy coming to battle with them. They faced the problem of sin being indwelling in the people. They faced the problem of the, uh, the people around them taking on their customs. And so little bit by little bit, with small concessions, they gave up their loyalty to God. And it happened time and time again. They would, they would turn back to the Lord and say, God, save us from what the mess that we've made for ourselves. And God would save them but they would fall prey again. So they needed a giant killer. They needed a new David, a David who would completely deal with all of the problems that they faced. 
who would drive back God's enemies and free them from the power of the serpent, Satan. That's why we needed Jesus. That's why we needed Jesus to come and to defeat Satan, sin and death. Jesus comes as the great conqueror, not to establish an earthly kingdom, but he comes to establish the kingdom of heaven. He comes casting out demons. And you go, hang on a second. I've read the Old Testament and there was no demons there. Where did all these demons come from when Jesus rocks up on the scene? It's so, it's so the, the coming of Jesus brought all these evil spirits out to do battle with him and he's just casting them out left, right and center. The, in, the, in the Old Testament, sorry, not in the Old Testament, in the Second Temple period, they, there was conjecture, so take this as conjecture only, not as the word of God. There was conjecture that the demons were the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Do with that what you will. But we don't know where they came from. But when Jesus turns up on the scene, here he is marching around, defeating all of the spiritual powers left, right and center. And not only that, he would go to the cross and die in what looked like an apparent um, loss. It looked like he'd been defeated. But actually, that was all part of his plan, that to go and to die on behalf of God's people. And in doing so, he triumphed over the powers and principalities. He disarmed them. All their claims that they had on God's people were undone by the work of Jesus Christ. In some sense, the bad guys were misdirected. That's why when you go back and look at the Old Testament, you can't put together the full picture of what God was doing. God was feeding intel to his people. Look, I'm working on some stuff. I've got some... I'm doing stuff, but he didn't give them the full picture. The full picture only became apparent after Jesus came and did his work. But Jesus came, he disarmed them. We're told in Colossians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus came and overthrew all these enemies. He, Satan had a claim on people because he was an accuser. He would accuse them and say, God, these guys are sinners. They've disobeyed you. They've rebelled against you. But God comes and he puts Jesus' atonement in the way. So now... Satan has no more claim on, on anybody who belongs to Jesus because Jesus has dealt with all of our sin. He's dealt with all of our trespasses. We have, there is no legal right for Satan or any of his cronies to have anything to do with us because we belong to Jesus. And now Jesus is building this kingdom, a kingdom that is reclaiming the nations, a kingdom that has a message that goes out to the ends of the earth and says, Jesus has come to set you free. Join him. Come and worship the one who is the true leader, the one who is the true God overall, the one who will set you free. Jesus is building a church, a called out people that the gates of hell cannot overthrow. But we're not quite to the end yet. There is still a final battle to come. Satan has been mortally wounded but he's still on the prowl. And so the scriptures tell us that there will be a final battle where it's all done and dusted. 
when it's finally all put to bed, when the final conquering will be done. If you read the pages of Revelation and you look for the word conquer, you will be astounded at how many times it shows up. Not only God conquering, but the fact that he calls his people to conquer. God paints a picture of the final battle at the end times. There's heaps of pictures of it throughout Revelation, but I'm just going to narrow it down to a few verses towards the end. John sees this vision. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Sorry, this is a bit small. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog together them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here is a vision of what it will look like for God to win. To defeat those spiritual powers that have been rebelling against him since the beginning of the earth. He will overthrow them and defeat them forever. He will conquer. It will all be brought to an end and God's people will finally be free to dwell with him and to live with him and enjoy him forever. To live in the peace and security of his dominion. And we will be free to live out our role as dominion takers under his side without the the threat of sin, without the threat of death, without all of the disruption and corruption that Satan and sin and death have brought. It will be a time of full restoration forever. And that's what we're looking forward to. But then the question remains, what do I do now? Samuel, you've given me the big picture. What do I do now? Well, we read about it earlier. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 6. And there are other passages in the scriptures that tell us about doing similar things. We we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, that's the passage from Ephesians. I'll just read it. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. God calls you to put on the armor that he has provided so that you might be protected and so that you can struggle against the powers and principalities under him. We are going out and conquering, not in the sense of taking up swords and literally conquering nations, but we're going out and winning hearts and minds to the Lord with a message, a message of hope. 
We're going out and reclaiming those nations that, that had rebelled against God and God had disowned. He's bringing them all back in and restoring them to unity with himself. That the nations have not all been brought back in yet. There is still work for us to do. To go out and take that message. But the other thing is, I suppose a warning for us. A warning for us uh, as parents. You think about the fact that your kids are going to grow up and be loosed into a world in which there is a spiritual battle going on. Are you going to send them out there with no armor? Are you going to send them out there with nothing to fight with? You need to equip your children, prepare them for what they will face. You know how difficult it has been for you to go out into the world and to face off against the spiritual forces of this dark age. Think about the fact that you need to prepare your kids to do the same. We, we are one generation in a whole line of generations who are going out with the Lord and serving him, being his people, taking this good news to the ends of the earth. I hope and pray that it won't stop with us, but there will be a thousand generations to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and that you are reuniting the world to yourself. Even though we have rebelled against you, even though we've done what is evil in your sight, we thank you that you are conquering, that you are disarming the powers. We thank you, Lord, that you are defeating Satan, that deceiver. We pray, Lord, that we would not lose sight of this. Please, Lord, keep it front of our minds as we face, uh, go out into, into a world. Lord, we know that you are the source of all that is good and wonderful, and Lord, we want other people to know, so please give us confidence. Please empower us by your Holy Spirit to take this message out so that more and more people might find salvation in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, equip us, protect us, and lead us into the fight. Amen. Thank you, Samuel. I've enjoyed this series because sometimes we might look through Scripture and wonder or think about how God seems to be harsh and vindictive, but when you understand who his enemies are, who his people are, and the, and the bigger picture, it all makes a lot more sense. So thank you uh, for that word, Samuel. And I also reflecting in Psalm chapter 30, about how um, the Lord punishes or is angry with three or four generations but gives grace to a thousand generations. And it says in Psalm 30 verse uh, 5, For his anger is but for a moment and his favour is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes in the morning. So it's a, a worthwhile prayer that we would be a, a link in the chain of those a thousand generations who... He blesses. Let's uh, sing one final song to to the Lord now, and uh, it's called Agnus Dei.